Welcome back to PS Editor's Podcast. I'm Greg Bruno. You told the world that time's up on violence. You told the world that time's up on silence. You told the world that it's time for a new day, time for a new locker I think can be greatly described by Martin Luther King. And what he said about time is, I'm not ready to wait 100 or 200 years for things to change. That I think actually that time is neutral. That it can either be used constructively or destructively. That human progress rarely rolls in on inevitability. For the record, feminism by definition is the belief that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities. I am angry. Gender as it functions today is a grave injustice. We should all be angry. Anger has a long history of bringing about positive change. Gender equality is no longer a talking point. Nearly a century after women around the world began gaining the right to vote, their descendants are demanding an end to harassment and abuse, and governments and businesses are finally taking action. But that isn't true everywhere. In Pakistan, women remain woefully underrepresented in key sectors. And according to the World Bank, during the last decade, Pakistan's gender gap actually widened. In March, the world was reminded once again how far Pakistan has to travel on the road to equality. When the Nobel laureate Malala Yousafzai returned home for the first time since being shot in the head for her gender-related advocacy, she was greeted by supporters, but also by protesters who claimed that her message was un-Islamic. My guest today understands such reactions well. In 2001, Kuratulain Fatima became one of the first women ever to serve in the Pakistan Air Force. But like Malala, she too was criticized for her work. Today, Kura Tulane is a 2018 Aspen New Voices Fellow and an expert in gender-inclusive development and peacekeeping. And she's adamant that Pakistan can end the subordination of women, but says that it will take decades of continued effort. Hello. Hello, Kura Tulane? Yeah. Hi, this is Greg at Project Syndicate. How are you? Yeah, hi, I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for joining us on PS Editor's podcast today. Thank you. So I want to start with your most recent PS commentary as a way to get into the conversation, in which you compared your Pakistan Air Force experience to a recent decision in Saudi Arabia uh, that will allow women in that country to serve uh, in the military as well. Could you tell us about your service and how Pakistan came to encourage female inclusion in the armed forces and what you foresee as potential challenges for your counterparts in Saudi Arabia? As I wrote in my commentary that I understand what women in Saudi Arabia are feeling right now because like a decade ago I was in their shoes and it was the time that Pakistan first opened uh, a quota for 33% women induction in the armed forces and also in the parliament and all other places. It was a period of uh, late 90s and that continued till the 2002 and 3 when all the fields were opening up. So when we joined the Pakistan Air Force, um, Pakistan Air Force was one of the first to step up because it's a bit educated force as compared to the army or the navy in Pakistan. It's um, a smaller force, so it was easier for them to accommodate women and to train them. When we joined it, it was 
like a dream come true but it was a very um, interesting situation when pakistan was actually opening up uh, spaces for women but you know really reluctant that what is going to happen it was kind of an experimentation that was going on so we were a group of eight women who went to all male military academy and we saw we were a site for um, boys there because they had never seen women in the academy and it was difficult but i would say that we have took some measures that were culturally appropriate to encourage us mm. to complete the training and we graduated and as an officer i did find a lot of um, you know there were some setbacks some things that are still not discussed in our society and not still in military like harassment and you know the glass ceiling that is more visible more felt in um, the armed forces because it's a more patriarchal structure mm. so it's stronger But in the, I, it was stronger in the military than you're saying yeah it's stronger in the military it's a, it's a masculine um um organization but and i know i mean still because now it's it's been like two decades and uh, women are um, more and more women are in the armed forces and the pf and the uh, army so things are a bit better like for pilots there were there are now separate crew rooms which suits us culturally and it enables women to uh, be comfortable and there are, there are policies that spouses are going to be posted in the same station or uh, about the leave and they try to uh, accommodate them but there's still uh, uh, not much about uh, harassment or sexual harassment mm, right. uh, uh, reporting there and still uh, women um, you know tend to not report it which is like quite prevalent in a lot of militaries because they think their career is in jeopardy right, so right. coming to saudi arabia i know it's it's a more conservative culture than pakistan pakistan was still quite modern when it comes to women and saudi arabia would have to face a lot of challenges first of all i don't know i mean women are uh, have never set foot out of their homes without their uh, male members so how are they going to manage the military uh, training and how they're going to manage this placement because to me right now it seems like a window dressing that they just want to show uh, to the world that you know they're turning liberal and they're letting mm. women in so kind of But like really want... kind of like the driving yeah. issue as well that the crown prince has initiated yeah yeah definitely and if they really wanted to make work then i would really rec- some of the recommendations that i had was they just look to the to to the places that are similar to them like to the muslim country armed forces pakistan can be a very good example like the way they started they might have to segregate women initially during the training because it worked for our culture it might not work for another country like norway that does not believe in segregation of gender during training or anything so they could do that they could ask uh, women from uh, pakistan's armed forces they are very competent women who can go and train these women because mm. when i joined there were there was no women to train me hmm. uh, i mean it was very difficult to you know communicate a certain things with a male course commander that was used to training men and maybe used to hitting them during the training as well it was it's common hmm. so or punishing them so you know Uh, that it was very difficult so i mean i think saudi arabia is at a point where it it can look up to a lot of other muslim countries that have opened uh, their armed forces to women and mm. they can get uh, learn from their strategies 
I mean, you, you said that it's, in your estimation, potentially window dressing. But, you know, these are yeah. extremely difficult policies to implement in, yeah. in conservative countries like Saudi Arabia and also as in Pakistan's case. And yet you yeah. argue in, in your commentary that countries actually need women in their military ranks. So why, why, yeah. do they, why is that so? Why do militaries need women? I think, uh, first of all, as I mentioned, that military uh, is uh, made around the concept of masculine power and uh, a conventional war. Because when the concept of military was evolved, it was evolved around a conventional interstate war. But the nature of the conflict is changing all around the world. More and more of the militaries are, we know, uh, fighting very unconventional wars guerrilla wars, or wars against terrorism, wars at their home front, like in the case of Pakistan. Uh, I fought in, uh, in the war on terrorism at its peak during 2007 and 11. And I know what a difference it made when there, was a, when there were women in the armed forces because we could reach out to more women and do intelligence gathering as well. So you just, you, you, as a man, you are just, you know, trapped within that uh, masculinity of yours and you just don't want to, uh, you know, interact at a human level, which is a requirement of a conflict that is not like between two soldiers now. It's like you are, I mean, in case of terrorism, if you're tracking down terrorism, if you're fighting it, you have civilians in very close proximity. Mm, so you right. need to be, you need to, you need to have that very, um, you know, you need to change, need a change in your strategy. Right, and right. also, a second reason would be, you know, we have seen all over the world then there, that there are, you know, so much uh, cases of harassment being reported in the militaries. Okay, because and a lot of women, um, and these are usually treated by the military law to through the chain of command. And there are very few women in the chain of command. Usually they're just men, and some of the men are the perpetrators of these crimes. So if you have more women, it's easier to, you know, change the policies. If they, and it's easier for them to, you know, move to the top and make it easier for other women to be in that structure. So I think these are the two uh, main reasons hmm. that I think that more women should be in the military. So, so just quickly, you, you mentioned what life was like for you when you were going through the academy. What was it like once you were commissioned? Did attitudes change? change at all when you were actually uh, in an operational situation was the respect yeah. given that that, uh, that you felt was deserved yeah i think i mean um, i do believe that there are good and bad examples everywhere and when i got commissioned i i mean they the pf was not not sure of what uniform we were going to wear like men wear trousers and shirts and they were not sure if what they wanted women to wear so Finally, they decided, and when I used to wear that uniform, which was a sari, it, it's it's a it's a fabric that Indians usually wear as well. So um, I used to walk from my office to another office, and everybody, including the men, uh, including the airmen, like my 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 subordinates, used to stand and watch me because it was such a sight that was so strange for them. And when initially I used to give them orders, it was very difficult. They did not disobey, I must say, because uh, um, armed forces have a structure of very uh, is a is very hierarchical, where you are respected due to your uh, ranks. But it was very difficult for them to take orders from a woman. And sometimes um, I did experience this thing personally as well that some of our male bosses uh, got casual with us, or you know, uh, they did not know how to talk with us, or maybe. Um, 
they thought that women who are who have come to the military probably are you know easy women that kind of a thing but it ha- but on on the whole with time it has changed and there was no trouble when i was working in general there were mm. some incidents like the ones that i told you but in general there was not there was no trouble and uh, they did accept my authority and it was uh, easy for me to work and i imagine that it's it's probably evolving even more uh, as we speak you know a question that i wanted to to kind of move on to your your experience was was certainly groundbreaking in many ways and yet female participation in most national militaries remains very very low it strikes me as a bit curious. You were talking about how militaries need new strategies to deal with current threats. It's ironic in yeah. some ways that non-governmental groups, guerrilla groups, are, are often more gender equal. For example, in, uh, in Turkey, the Kurdish PKK fighters, 40% of them are women. And it was yeah. a similar percentage in Colombia uh, with FARC. Why, why do you think non-state actors are more progressive than governments? I think um, um, I think it, it's it's true for women as well as minorities. When that when some organization or some group is trying to to break the status quo, women get a space to uh, you know really uh, get progressive. Like you see in the case of wars, whenever there is an actual breakout of a war, then civilian women might get out and you know. Um, uh, help out with the medical mm-hmm. activities. So I think in the case of these uh, guerrilla organizations as well, they are more inclusive and they have limited resources and they have spaces where, you know, women are encouraged to participate in their activities. So it's as much necessity as anything else. Yeah, it's a necessity as well. And it's, it's, it's because it's non-traditional most of the time. It's it's because the status quo is changing, and that is the time when women get like in the case of Arab Spring. You see a lot of women like traditionally Arab countries are not pro women, but you see a lot of women participating in that. And after the it ended, you you, you see like women just you know shrink mm. back from these. So I think these are the these are the times even the non-violent movements have women as their forefront. Mm. It's the time when there is a status quo is shaking and women get some space. Let's move beyond the military aspect for a second uh, in, into broader issues of gender equality in Pakistan. Pakistan doesn't yeah. rate very well in terms of female empowerment across different sectors. And one yeah. statistic that I saw from a recent UN report said that nearly 50% of women in Pakistan have, quote, no say in decisions regarding their own health care. I wonder mm-hmm. if, if the health sector might be a place for broader gender equality to start or if it needs to start somewhere else. And you know, who are the leaders that are currently pushing for gender equality in Pakistan? I think um, it's a very, I mean, it's a very interesting observation that you have made. And I agree that Pakistan, we all know, is the second worst country on the gender equi- gender parity index of uh, World Economic Forum. And we are treating women very badly to say it plainly and um, you're right about the healthcare because the infant mortality rate is quite high and women die during birth a lot of times 
so in my opinion in equality and women empowerment should start from home we need to you know educate our men more than our women about women equality and how to empower women we live in uh, in a structure we our houses our culture our society is very patriarchal where man is you know the head of the family he has the decisions and same happens in the healthcare sector as well because as i told you that it's about giving birth and men has the decision on family planning on uh, how many kids he wants to have when he wants to have if he wants to take uh, her uh, sorry take his wife to a male doctor or not hmm. and these kind of decisions so i think you're right healthcare could be could be the best place to start this empowerment of women and there has been a lot of investment by the government in healthcare but not particularly in investment in empowering women led healthcare right. you know it's where it comes that we need gender inclusive policies everywhere what is the problem of pakistan it is that we think because we have become modern and now we want to improve so we make gender as a component of our strategy and then just leave it be gender is not something that is underlying the whole policy it's not something that's dealing with all the aspects of the policy and that is why whatever measures government take like see just uh, recently they took the, this uh, measure of introducing uh, women on wheels you know providing uh, motorcycles to women to empower them so they can go places but hmm. they are not actually making the environment conducive or stopping Uh, the harassment through policies that would enable women to actually go on the roads. But is, is this a political issue that that has traction? I mean, are there are there strong leaders on women's rights who get votes because of that issue, or is it more of an ancillary issue? You know, we do have women activists, women rights uh, activists who have worked a lot. Like Asma Jahangir was one. We have Malala Yousafzai, who's another one. We have. a lot of other women who have been who are working on women rights in pakistan we have shad begum she works and all these kinds of activists but you know um, activism is is something that drives policy activists do not take decisions they influence decision makers and decision makers are the parliamentarians that are sitting in the parliament or the legislatures and pakistan's legislature has the most number of women that come on special seats that are appointed hmm. that are appointed by the political parties now if you go through this the list of the uh, special seat parliamentarians you would see 90% of the women with surnames that are very that comes from strong political families so gender is not really an issue for them you know they have not right, really experienced right. gender in my opinion which answers your question that women do not get votes on women rights even women do not vote women on women rights because their voting behaviors are governed by their men they are going to vote someone their their husband or brother or son ask them to there are very few women who are going to vote first of all on their own um, uh, you know decision on their own mind so i think it's 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 unfortunately women are not getting votes on women rights they are either they are not even in the parliament on the on the direct elections most mm. of the women are in the parliament because there is a quota and that quota is being filled by by the by the political parties and still 
uh, women parliamentarians do not get funding as much as the male parliamentarians so they they cannot you know spend money on uh, initiatives that benefit women in addition to female legislators it's also about voters and there's a there's a general election yeah. coming up in July and yeah. i wonder how the issue of gender equality is factoring into the conversation at all and whether or not female voter turnout is an issue that has gotten any attention in the broader conversation over the years i think the i think women voter turnout has been um, has been an issue at different places and in the, even in the last election and the election before that we had some places in khyber pakhtunkhwa where there was a jirga decision that women cannot vote and they did not go to vote and there are places where women faced uh, violence and so they refused to uh, you know go to the polls or there were very few number of women who went to the polls so there are these issues and but there has been an electoral reform for the upcoming elections and which aims to provide security and uh, improve the situation of the women voters but you know coming back to that again it's all intertwined because women do not have access to education as much as men have and still their decisions are uh, influenced by men of their family you mentioned previously that some of the role models uh, that that speak for female empowerment and gender rights in Pakistan and one of them was Malala and yeah. Malala was just recently in Pakistan she returned i believe it was 5 years since she was shot in the head for her advocacy i still can't believe that this is actually happening is such hai maine pichle 5 saalon mein hamesha se yahi khwab dekha hai ki main and she was greeted not just by supporters but also by those who denounced her message and advocacy as heresy some of those people holding placards were school children and teachers it must be upsetting after everything that you've been through and everything that you're trying to do to have people here in your home country more so than anywhere else have this abuse at you i mean i was looking at i don't know if you've seen it but there's this bizarre video of um an anti malala day that's being held by children in a school well i haven't seen these uh, i have not seen these and i think um, the most children would not know who malala is and what she stood for and they would not know what i am not malala means or what i am malala means and i think uh, we should allow children to learn about these things themselves uh, and uh, but also i want to say that this is not if sc- if school teachers and children are opposing female empowerment yeah. how can a country change yeah i mean i think it's it's a very important question that we should also as pakistanis be asking ourselves as well pakistan actually is in my opinion a country of contradictions it's a country that uh, you know wants to uh, have people that want to go to usa and live there but we really hate americans you know we don't want them financing us but we don't want them you know helping us out but we want to go there and live and enjoy all the benefits of us of of you know a first world country right, that right. so it's the same thing with the malala's case you know malala is such a brave girl who uh, faced bullet and who faced such hatred just because she's a girl and 
she did not die of a bullet by a taliban and she got an opportunity to a new life and she using this that opportunity to advocate the cause of girls rather than you know she could have hidden she could have you know disappeared and done just what she wanted to do on gone with her life but the but the people that we have the kind of mindset that they have and especially that is after post uh, 9/11 post mm. afghan war right. when there is this uh, salafi and this very fanatical mindset that we have you know taken from um, from some uh, ideologies that were not ours pakistan used to pakistan was a very moderate country and this is something that we have imported and then we have you know instilled in us and with time this extremist voices that you know bash malala just for, just because she is talking about rights of women and rights of rights of uh, to education is getting louder hmm. the liberal voices are because they are peaceful voices are lower and you always you know that the the voice of violence is always high right so right that's that's the thing that's going on well and if if her experience demonstrates the cost of speaking out then there aren't that many who will actually take that risk yeah and i mean our politicians that are, that you know are supposed to make policies about uh, about violence and about uh, about you know protecting women are the ones who are involved in crimes just recently we had this uh, singer who was pregnant and she was just shot by a, by a politician by a i can't understand what kind of a man he was that he just shot a woman just because she was not standing up to sing that is how that is how much vulnerable women are in pakistan i mean i don't know what he was thinking yeah it's just I awful it's just awful yeah. i want i want to yeah. ask um a question that kind of brings this conversation full circle that that incorporates both your military and your civil society experience um, yeah. A few weeks ago, a guest here on the podcast, Rachel Vogelstein, who's a scholar at the Council on Foreign Relations, noted that if you look at any successful peace process around the world, from Colombia to Northern Ireland, there was always mm-hmm. solid representation of women around the table. Um, and where that's not the case, violence and conflict have persisted. Now, she was thinking about the war in Syria, but I wonder, based mm-hmm. on some of the things that we've talked about today, a similar observation could be made for Pakistan, and if, in fact, there is a table to bring people, including women, around to solve some of these very complicated problems. Yeah, I mean, you're really right about women representation and dispute resolution. In my personal my personal experience, recently I'm doing a project on GIS mapping of water disputes in Punjab. And what I discovered is that, that when we went and talked to the farmers in conservative communities, a lot of women who are involved in agriculture stepped forward and facilitated the reconciliation um, you know, a process among families. They actually offered their own houses for the reconciliation between, uh, you know, these, uh, uh, for the water dispute uh, resolutions. And one woman told me, which I, I, I remember, is that, you know, so she said that, you know, I'm concerned and I know I'll make this peace sustainable because it's my home's problem. It's a problem that affects my house. And that is the, the catch in this. You know, women take responsibility for the family and for the children. And children are the ones that are really affected by these terrorist recruitment um, tactics. And they go on to, they they go off to um, join these, uh, you know, outfits like ISIS and all. So they're concerned about that. And secondly, about a woman's, I mean, totally women, 
like in Rwanda's parliament, we have like it's a it's a parliament that has the highest number of women in them, and they have, in my opinion, the best constitution, the best practices, and the best way of, re- of reconciliation after such a bad genocide. And in Pakistan, there are forums. There is a women caucus in the parliament mm-hmm. that could be used, mm. and also there are many. There is a women ministry in in Pakistan at the provincial level and at the um, federal level. Also, there are women civil servants. I work uh, for the civil servant right, uh, civil service right now, and there are women civil servants who are implementing this policy. If we can all bring them together, maybe under the auspices of the women caucus in the parliament, we can we can we can really come up with good solutions. Well, I think that's a good place to leave the conversation uh, after such a, a sobering one, a potential path uh, forward with a solution. So thank you so much for your time, Kura Tulane. It was fantastic speaking with you today. Thank you so much for having me, and it's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. That was Kura Tulane Fatima, a 2018 Aspen New Voices Fellow and an expert on gender-inclusive development and peacekeeping. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review our podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you like what you hear, why not subscribe to our newest editorial offering, On Point, available at www.project-syndicate.org. Until next time, I'm Greg Bruno. Bruno.